what I arrived at was that your heart voice will never tell you what not to do. It'll only tell you what to do. It will push you in some way that causes you to have to trust or have to love or have to forgive or have to, you know, ex- exercise some sort of spiritual <laughs> muscle that maybe has atrophied because you've been, you haven't been doing much of that in your life. Hello, friend, and welcome to episode 35 of the Feeling Full podcast. I hope you're having a great day. I'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without going on crazy diets and without doing intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then this show is for you. Today, our guest is Light Watkins. Since 2012, Light has been teaching people from all walks of life how to enjoy a daily meditation practice. He's taught thousands of people through his workshops, his books, and his online teachings. He's the author of three books. His second book, Bliss More, is all about how to meditate. And his latest book, Knowing Where to Look, is filled with inspirational stories and teachings, helping you cultivate your own intuition. Meditation has been such a powerful tool in my own life, helping me become more aware and enabling me to hear the quiet voice inside more loudly, a voice we all have access to. You may be familiar with the concept of two voices, the should voice and the inner knowing voice. In the first half of this conversation with Light, we were going to discuss his unique journey on becoming a meditation teacher. And in the second half, we talk about how Light learned to tune into his intuition, make decisions from a much more powerful place, and the impact it had on his life and the powerful ripple effect that had on many, many others. If you're interested in learning more about Light, you can follow him on Instagram or Twitter under the handle Light Watkins and check out his podcast called At the End of the Tunnel. And before we get started, it would mean a lot to me if you would take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast. Not only will this ensure you never miss an episode, but you'll also greatly help with the growth of the show. Alrighty, thanks for joining and let's jump right in. Brother, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm I'm honored to be here, man. It's good so, to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. It's it's actually been a hot minute. I'm trying to think um, when we were when last time we were in person. I, I, the the last memory I have is actually at a Shine event. I'm not sure. I was going to say was that Shine? Was it a Shine event in, um, in Playa in del Rey? In Playa del yeah. Rey, possibly. It was the one in Santa Monica, I think, at Cross Campus. Oh right, 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 right. Cross Campus. Wow, I forgot about that spot. Yeah, that was a few years ago before. Um, I don't. I, 2018, I moved out of LA back to New Same. York. Yeah, I I went nomadic in in uh, May of 2018, so I wasn't I didn't I wasn't there. In fact, that's when we stopped doing the shine events as regularly. I think we did like a few more after that when I would come back to town. But uh, yeah, that was that was my the end of my LA era as well. Wow. What a time, huh? I'm, I've been to a handful of Shine events. I always, mm. I, one of the things I loved about the Shine events was I actually felt like a normal person because like, you know, not everyone is drinking booze, right? They're, it's like a social event where you're drinking, you know, seltzer, <laughs> kombucha, mm-hmm. and like whatever other drinks, right? But it was always a very- On a Saturday night. Exactly. On a Saturday night. And it just felt like a healthy, inspirational couple hours. Like you feel like you're, you feel like your cup got filled. Yeah. And that was the whole point, man. It's like, you know, I stopped drinking 
um, over 20 years ago. I'm in my late 40s now, and I stopped drinking in my mid 20s. And um, you know, do you are you do you do you not drink? Not not my. I mean, it's okay. I'm not like it's, it's I don't identify as sober, but right. I just don't really drink. And um, when you are in that space, you, there's not a lot of social scenes with adults where that's not like a, a little bit far, too extreme in the direction of sobriety. It's like, I don't want to really party with sobriety people. <laughs> I still like great music. I still like inspirational talks and comedy and improv and, you know, all the, all the things that come with social so socializing. I just don't need to do it around getting buzzed or, or high with substances. So that's why I created it in, uh, I think it was 2014, uh, the shine started in LA and it was a great, it was a great thing, man. It was a really fun thing. We did many dozen shows, dozens and dozens of shows, hundreds of people. And, uh, yeah, so those are some great memories. I want to get some backstory on a little mm -hmm. bit, how, how you became the man you are, the meditation teacher that you you are, and doing all this great work. Um, how does how does a guy from Alabama, a kid from Alabama, turn into a um, modern day meditation teacher? How did that How did that happen? So I grew up in Alabama, and as I've said before in talks, you know there there are more snowstorms in Alabama than there are meditators <laughs> back when I was growing up, and uh, you know it's the Bible Belt, so there's a lot of religious talk. And uh, when I went to church the whole time I was growing up, and then when I left Alabama for college, I went to school in DC and I thought I was going to work in advertising. And, 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 and I inevitably got a job in advertising after college, but it only lasted about three months because I decided that while it was a great job and I, you know, I saw myself having a lot of potential in that industry, I didn't feel it was my first proper nine to five corporate job. And I didn't feel like I was ready for that. I wanted to travel a little bit more. And so I got into modeling. I nominated myself as a model and um, I was tall, you know, and relatively thin. And I just discovered working out um, literally like that summer after college when I was working that job in advertising started working out. And, um, and so I, I had a hard time getting into modeling because I realized later, you don't, you, you don't nominate yourself as a model. Other people, you discover you, you get discovered by agents, you know, walking through the mall and this kind of thing. So it was very challenging for me. I got rejected a lot. And, um, but I just kept, you know, when you're young, you, you don't think of rejection in the same way as when you're older. And I just kept putting myself out there. I didn't let it get to me very much. And uh, ended up doing that. You know, at first I had to wait tables and stuff, but then ended up having a decent modeling career after about five years of trying. And then, and then after year number six or seven, decided that, you know, I had more, more to offer to the world than just standing in front of a camera. And, uh, <laughs> and that's where I moved to Los Angeles. All my friends, you know, you know how it is in New York. Everybody at some point, at least experiments with living in L.A. 
Before, and, before, uh, be, before you go there, you said that you had a moment where you realized you had more to offer the world. I'm really curious about that moment because that feels like yeah. a very pivotal. Yeah. So I had, uh, I was dating this girl who lived in Brooklyn. And I remember one night I was at her apartment. She was getting ready. We were going somewhere. Can't remember, probably to dinner or something. And I, I saw this book on her bookshelf and I picked it up and it was Conversations with God. And I started thumbing through it and I thought it was a religious book. And I, I didn't want to have anything to do with religion because of, you know, growing up in the Bible belt and just not really fully connected to it. But I noticed really quickly that it wasn't a religious book. It's a spiritual book. And it was about this guy who was asking these, the same questions I had been asking my entire life up to that point. What's the, what's the meaning of life? You know, are there such things as aliens? You know, all these kind of random questions that he was posing to this higher intelligence in his mind and then sort of channeling these answers. And that became conversations with God. And I just couldn't put it down. And I went and got my own copy and then I bought volume number two and volume number three. And then I reread them all three or four times and they were all dog-eared and highlighted and underlined and everything. And I became obsessed with, with, understanding more and more of the of the esoteric aspects of reality because i i realized i'd had these questions for a long time and i just never really had good answers or language for it and so that led to other books seed of the soul and um celestine prophecy and peaceful warrior and you know uh, zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and basically all the classic spiritual books I started getting into yoga and then through yoga, I got into meditation. This is all in New York city. And so the great thing about having a, a, a modest modeling career <laughs> is that you could work one day a month and pay all your bills. Right. Oh so you weren't, you weren't balling, but you could, you could make your ends meet from working once or maybe twice a month, which meant you had a lot of free time to dabble in other things. So it was perfect because I had, I put myself on this sort of self-study spiritual track where I was doing lots of yoga and reading and took my first meditation classes and was getting deeper and deeper and deeper into that. And so that's where that, that realization came from is, you know, uh, it doesn't get more surface than modeling, the modeling, the fashion industry, you know? So it gave me a lot of time to explore this other area of interest and to go deeper and deeper into that. And then I just made a decision one day standing in my kitchen in Harlem. I was like, oh, I'm just going to follow my heart. You know, I'm just going to follow my heart and see what happens. And something, my heart was saying, my heart was saying, it's time to get out of modeling and, and move to Los Angeles. Did something happen that, that day that you were like, I'm going to follow my heart? If you recall, even, I don't know if it's. Yeah, that? no, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, and it's a question I ask a lot as well. And I have a story about it that's coincidentally in my newest book, Knowing Where to Look. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't remember, honestly, if I'm being completely honest, I don't remember if it happened that day or, right. um, or later. But I'll tell you the story. It's a good story. So I was watching this, uh, this Chris Rock movie. And Chris Rock is... is uh, notorious for making pretty bad movies but the storyline in this movie was he was playing a, um, a businessman who was married 
and he had somehow gotten the attention of some beautiful woman who he started flirting with. And then he started sneaking around trying to date her on the side. And his colleagues uh, noticed that he was being absent a lot in meetings. And, uh, and so anyway, he ended up missing this very important business meeting that cost the company a lot of money. And his boss pulled him aside and said, hey, listen, you know, I see you chasing this woman and you're, you're, you're losing money by doing that. And he says, look, this is how it works. If you chase women, you're always going to lose money. But if you chase money, you're never going to lose women. <laughs> and that was the line that sort of stuck out to me, not for, not for the reason the boss, the character of the boss intended. What I did was I, I related that again. I've been doing all the spiritual reading, so I related that to the idea of consciousness and, mm. and inner happiness and following your heart. And so I replaced money with with following your heart. And I said, if you just follow your heart, you're you're never going to be lacking in what you think you need. If you try to chase external, you know, pleasures, money, and and uh, whatever you think you need externally in order to be fulfilled, then you're always going to feel lacking. So, so I just kind of flipped it and made that, that idea of chasing or, or following my heart seem like the most prudent thing to do. And, and so that was around the time, if not the very day that I decided I was going to start following my heart relentlessly. Yeah, it's um, that's a courageous act. You know, it's like the idea of following your heart without exactly knowing where you're going, is in a way of act of bravery. And yeah, I mean, it's that 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 that's the main prerequisite. Is <laughs> you you have to challenge your intellect, which is going to try to talk you out of of doing the thing that your heart is telling you to do. And this is what I talked a lot about today is that your heart is, you know, a lot of people fan, oh, I want to follow my heart. I can't even hear what my heart saying, my heart saying. And I say in response to that, that whatever your heart is saying to you, if it's truly a message from your heart, it's, it's going to nudge you in the direction of something that you're not going to be quite sure about, or you're not going to see how it's going to turn out. And so it's going to take a lot of courage and bravery in order to do that. Like your heart's not going to say, go and and uh, and do the obvious thing, right? Yeah. It's going to say, quit your job, get out of the relationship, take this risk, and uh, and it's going to challenge you. It's going to stretch you. It's going to you're going to have to become a bigger version of yourself in order to actually do that. And that's the whole point. Is that it, 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 it's it's a it's a way of evolving in your understanding or evolving spiritually or emotionally so that you can become the person that would do something like that. So you had no idea at that point you were going to become a meditation a meditation teacher. Would you would you no, that was not no. like that so it wasn't a it wasn't a goal of yours. You were just pursuing the idea of meditation and one thing I thought about it. teaching yoga loosely I thought about that, but at the time I was still modeling. You know, when you model this is back in the 90s, mind you, or in the early 2000s. You're you're making 
you can make on a decent job $3,000 in a day, maybe even for half a day's work, you know? And then, so they're flying you around, go to San Francisco, make 5,000 to shoot something there and then go to Milan and make, you know, 30,000 to do the fragrance. And so it's pretty good money. And it's kind of exciting because every day could be the day where you get the call for a $10,000 job or a $3,000 job. I mean, it gets to the point where you start to look down on a $1,200 job for a half a day's work. You're like, oh, is that it? $1,200. <laughs> so it's really easy money for what it is, you know, compared to roofing or working at in a retail or something like that for, you know, $15 or $20 an hour. Um, so you kind of, there's a psychology that comes with that, where you start comparing that to other things. And I, I feel like moving away from that was a leap of faith for me, even though I wasn't working a ton, I was still working enough to justify keeping it going as almost like a financial crutch. Cause it gave me a lot of freedom to, again, study and read and explore and do other things. But for me, the first sort of leap of faith was to cut myself off of it, to resign myself from it and, um, and to fully commit myself to something else, which may or may not require me having to get a part-time job. Eventually it did require me to have to get a part-time job. Um, actually that's not true. I got a part-time job while I was modeling and then I didn't need one, but I was going to just do a complete pivot and and uh, I, didn't, I wasn't sure what that looked like. I was just going to, I was going to, you know, it's a cliche. I was going to leap and then watch the net appear. That's, that's what I was into at the time. I'm not going to plan it all out. Like I would normally try to do and figure out fi- where, where I want to be five years from now and, you know, and start taking baby steps in that direction. It was just, let me get out of New York. And by the way, I was going through a breakup at the time as well. So that helped to initiate the move when it actually happened was, you know, I was dating this woman who lived in my, we both lived in Harlem within a few blocks of each other. And we're great friends today. And we were good friends back then. It's just, I just emotionally, I just needed to separate myself from all of it. Cause everywhere I went, I was reminded of that relationship (laughs) because we had spent so many years together in that, in that neighborhood. So that was a catalyst for moving. And that was actually one of the, that was the second time I went, I, I would say I went nomadic because I got rid of everything. I got rid of my whole, it was the first, it was back when Craigslist was first starting to get a lot of traction. And I remember um, I created a web page because it was back when you could actually design websites and stuff as well. And I created a web page that looked like a uh, catalog with all my stuff in it and, and prices, you know, just doing it a little differently. And everything sold within like a few hours. Everything sold within a few hours. And then I was out of New York and I had nothing but a, like a duffel bag. And, um, went to Alabama where my family was. And then I uh, got my family's old car, Chevrolet Lumina and drove that across country to Los Angeles and just kind of 
stayed with friends for a while and then eventually got an apartment and then eventually uh, got into teaching yoga. So teaching yoga was the thing that led you to meditation? Was that your gateway? Yes, correct. Well, okay, so it's a little more complicated of a story. <laughs> it, seems like a, it seems like a trend with you. <laughs> so when I was in New York, that woman who I broke up with, or she broke up, we broke up with each other. Well, while we were together, like years before I moved, she, she begged me to come to this yoga class on the Upper East Side. And I was living on the Upper West Side at the time. And so going from the, as you know, going from the Upper East Side, West Side to the East Side, going across the island is just like at rush hour, which is when the class was, it's like a six o'clock PM class. I was just, I didn't want to do it. And I already had my little yoga routine that I did and I was set in my ways. And she was like, she just insisted that I come to this class. So then one night I just eventually gave in and said, okay, I'll meet you in the, at the class. And I came late probably because I didn't want to really be there. Anyway, long story short, it was a great class and I really loved the instructor. His name was, uh, was Will and he was an Australian guy. But even though it was a really great class, just like she said, I never went back because it just wasn't very convenient. And it was at New York Health and Racket, and I wasn't a member there. So I never went back to the class. So now cut to maybe three years later, four years later, I'm in Los Angeles. I just moved there. I'm living in, I'm staying in West Hollywood. And, um, and I decided I'm going to become a yoga teacher. And I go to Crunch Gym up on Sunset, and I go there. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to join the gym, but I also ask if I could, I could uh, go and check out some of their yoga classes because I wanted to try to take as many different teachers as possible to experiment, to see what style I liked and where I wanted to train and all of that. So literally, they gave me the schedule. Literally, literally the first class I went to was this guy named Will's class. And it just had the first name. So I, I didn't know, you know, I never didn't think it was the same guy, but the one in New York definitely left an impression on me. And I had this in, inner sort of suspicion that maybe it could be the same guy. I didn't know. Um, anyway, it was the same guy, same guy, Australian accent, everything. And I was like, wow, what are the chances? Like I went to your class three years ago in New York. And he goes, yeah, I remember you. And he remembered me because he had a crush on my girlfriend. And when I showed up to the class, I think, feel like, I think he was a little bit disappointed <laughs> that she actually had, was dating someone. And, uh, and so we ended up becoming fast friends because he had just moved to Los Angeles after breaking up with his girlfriend. So we bonded on the fact that we just broken up with our partners. So then three we started hanging out literally every day. And then, and then he became my meditation friend. Like every time we hung out to go to run to go to the movies, to go to lunch, he would say, Hey, have you meditated yet? And I'd be like, ah, uh, no. And I would always, it was, it was like a double-edged sword. Like I liked the idea of meditating, but I was very, very bad at it. And, um, and, but he seemed to be really into it. So I liked the idea that he would, suggest it, but I just didn't look, look forward to actually sitting and meditating and waiting for him to be finished essentially. Cause I was sitting there just battling with my thoughts 
the whole time. And so one day on a hike, maybe three months after that, after we met, he just mentioned as an aside, says, hey, my meditation teacher is coming to town on Sunday to meet with some of my yoga students about meditation. You should come check it out. And I thought, and he wasn't pushy or anything like that. And I thought, okay, cool. I'll come. Why not? And I went to that, that meditation talk or meeting or whatever it was. And within 10 minutes of meeting his teacher, I knew two things. Number one, I knew that I, I wanted to study with this person. And number two, I, I knew that I wanted to become a meditation teacher. So that was really the night that changed the trajectory of my life away from, I mean, I didn't know. I thought I was going to just be teaching yoga indefinitely because back then, 2002, teaching yoga was like a big deal. Like not a lot of people were doing it. And, um, and certainly nobody was teaching meditation at the time. You know, the, all, the only people teaching meditation were yoga teachers who would, who would lead these sort of meditation cycle circles um, at their apartments and things like that on the side, but they were mainly yoga teachers. They were mainly asana teachers. There were no meditation only circles that I was aware of at the time. And so, yeah, that was, uh, that was in 2003 when I met my meditation teacher. And then I ended up pro, uh, shadowing him around. I became one of his protégés for years. And I would, I would help set up and break down the rooms when he taught other people in Los Angeles. Then we started traveling all together, me, him, my friend, Will. My friend, Will, became his manager. And then in 2007, he invited myself and a few others to go to India, where he learned with his Indian teacher to show us how to become meditation teachers. And, um, and then that's where I started teaching meditation full time. Wow, man. What a, what a, what a journey, huh? That's, mm -hmm. um, that, that's a really incredible story. Um, it's 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 fascinating to hear you talk about how you became how you got into meditation. My journey into meditation was, you know, very different. I I heard about Headspace, I think, like seven years ago or something like that, six seven years ago, and and literally learned on Headspace how to meditate. And uh, it was it was it was really really profound. But um, it sounds like you had a much more meaningful um, um, uh, introduction to meditation. Uh, which I find find very well. Very ironically, compelling. ironically, you remember we talked about cross campus, that co working space yeah, where yeah. you do the shine. That's where the Headspace guys started. Oh no when way! They, when they came from London to Los Andy? Angeles, Andy, their, the yeah, their first office. Yep, Andy Pudicombe and his partner. Wow, their first office was at Cross Campus, and then that's where they got funding, and that's where they moved into their next office. And uh, I think that's in Playa del Rey or somewhere. But wow. yeah, it's just a funny little full circle moment. It's all these like little offsprings of things, you know, another offspring of, of something that's coming to mind is my friend, Mark Krasner, who attended one of your events, um, at some point, um, I don't know, maybe five or six, must've been five or six years ago. I'm not exactly sure, but mm -hmm. then came up with the idea of his company now, which is expectful, a meditation company for pregnant women. And it's kind of, he got into, he got, he got into meditation by coming to one of your events. Amazing. I didn't know that. That's a cool story. Yeah, yeah. I told him I was having you on the pod, and he and he shared that with me. So that's mm. super cool. <laughs> Do you know Jesse Israel? Yeah, sure. Jesse's a friend. Yeah, yeah. So I, I Jesse was in one of my trainings years and years ago, and then from there he ended up starting the Big Quiet, which I don't take credit for, but I just think it's a fun 
it's a fun thing to see. Cause I, I, I knew that he was really into meditation and he kind of had a similar experience to mine where he was struggling with it. And then, uh, he took my training and learned those mechanics that I learned from my teacher. And that's what kind of opened everything up for him as well. Wow. That is crazy. I mean, I've seen Jesse go through the whole, like probably over the last four or five years also go through his powerful expansion. And, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's so, that's so cool. Now he's one of the biggest meditation teachers out there. Yeah. Seeing him on stage at, um, um, when was that? The Oprah. Oprah's, yeah. Doing a meditation was, for what was, how many people was that? 2019 for literally tens of thousands of people. Yeah. He would have, they'd be in arenas with like 30,000 people, 20,000 people. It's crazy. Wow. It's fascinating. The ripple effect, you know, the ripple effect mm -hmm. of actions of decisions. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you can pinpoint some of the things, you know, meditation and that one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, you know, because meditation, I think is a, such an important part, um, of becoming aware of your thoughts. And it's, you know, back six, seven years ago when I was starting to meditate using headspace, it was, and I laugh because it just, it's a, it's, it feels like, you know, it's the, it's the surface level of meditation. Um, but it really changed my life because I really wasn't aware of my thoughts and the thoughts that, I was having were that all often leading to negative behaviors. Like, you know, my struggle, one of my biggest struggles, as you know, m my weight and my weight came from food and food was a result of some of the thoughts that were going on in my mind. And, and meditation seems so abstract to somebody who has a real problem, like an addiction compulsions. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm just really curious. I don't want to get into all of that so we can, you know, help people out that are listening to, to talk to them about some meditation stuff. But I'm curious before we get to that, looking at your path and, 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 and you becoming um, a meditation teacher, but also really somebody who embraces meditation in your life. How has that uh, changed um, your way of thinking or being? Yeah, um, it's funny. Well, first of all, I, I don't think I've ever known the overweight Mordecai. <laughs> I think I've only known you as who you are today. So it's, I don't have that point of reference for, you know, I can show you what, a picture what, sometime, <laughs> <laughs> what that was like for you. But yeah, man, I, um, I, well, people ask me now, what was it that led you into meditation? Because I think one of the more common sort of archetypal stories is that someone had a rock bottom moment and then they sort of found meditation and meditation helped to lift them back up, right? That wasn't really my experience. My experience was more, I was really, really curious about what lies beyond the five senses. And meditation was this thing that just, appealed to me because of what everyone was saying about it in, in these occult and esoteric metaphysical books that I've been devouring. Um, so I was looking for confirmation more than anything else. And like I said, with my friend, Will, like he would meditate, I'd be meditating in the same room. And, and I felt like my experience was different from his. So that was, that was making me even more curious. I remember as a kid, man, I used to we used to play with Rubik's cubes and I would, I was really fascinated with just how it worked. Like not 
not necessarily the algorithm, but how do you turn this cube in all these different ways? And so I would break them apart and, and look at the inner mechanism of how, how, the, how the cube actually functioned. And so that was something that became a trend in my life. I was always fascinated by how things functioned and, and why they did the things that they did. And um, so it was kind of like I was a scientist in a way. Um, and then when I discovered my teacher, I, my teacher became my teacher because he was someone who I recognized that, he was, that was able to show me the mechanics of meditation. And that's where I realized there's nothing arbitrary about the practice, like the way you sit, the time of day you do it, how you handle certain thoughts, maybe different from how you handle other thoughts, why you're having certain while you're having certain emotional responses or reactions, why you may cry in meditation, why you may fall asleep in meditation. Like none of that is accidental or arbitrary. Everything can be explained. And, uh, and so I became, that's where I went 10 layers deeper into the practice than I was able to go before is because I had the benefit of uh, mentor and guidance. And that's what led me to initially to, to eventually want to teach other people is is understanding it so well that I could then explain it simply to other people. And turns out I was pretty decent at it, you know? Um, and ended up writing that book, Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, as a sort of um, a way of helping other people who don't have access to teachers. Because it's, it's not a normal thing to have a very uh, knowledgeable meditation teacher. Most people, and this is not a slight, right? I'm just stating, objectively stating what the situation is. Most people who call themselves meditation teachers are not meditation teachers. They're meditation guides, meaning they are very good at prompting you in meditation, telling you what to think about or suggesting what to you what to think about or how to visualize this or how to imagine that or what to, how to breathe. But they're not really teaching you mechanics. They're not teaching you mechanics. It's kind of like if someone was, was uh, calling themselves a swimming teacher, but they're in the pool with you and they're saying, okay, just do what I'm doing and we're going to go across the pool. <laughs> but they're not really teaching you how to torque your body or how to breathe or, you know, how to move your arms and your legs and what drills will help you in, integrate those movements a lot faster and easier. And ultimately, if you're a really good swim coach, you're not in the pool with the person. You're standing, you know, standing there watching that person move through the water so you can tell them how they're being inefficient and, and helping to clean all that up so they can become more and more efficient. And when someone is really masterful at swimming, they're not thinking about swimming. They're just, they're just in the process. They're losing themselves in the process. And, and by moving through the process, they naturally start gliding across the water. So that's what I do. That's what I learned how to do with meditation. And it kind of put me in a category, a very small category of people who are actually out there teaching people to meditate. Yeah, it seems it seems that the thing you mentioned before about battling thoughts that that is like a a pain point for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a it's a pain point for somebody who th sits down for 
a minute and just feels like they can't be present with themselves or with their thoughts. And right. with your understanding of the mechanics that you learned and now you teach, where does somebody who's like at that place of like feeling like they, it's very challenging to be with themselves in that moment. What do you, what do you tell that person? So I, um, it's interesting. When I go through my process of teaching people, I go through the same process. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how busy you think your mind is or how quiet you think your mind is. I'll take you through the exact same process because I didn't create this process. I just, uh, I just learned through this process. And that was, you know, I, I had really powerful experiences from that, but I talk very little in the beginning about thoughts and about the mind. And I just have people um, sit comfortably. I obviously, I, if you know anything about Vedic meditation, which is what I teach, I give them a mantra and I show them how to use the mantra in a way that feels um, very natural. In other words, don't focus on this, this sound, just think it very casually, right? And what's interesting is when they think the sound casually, then the mantra does all the work for them. Like you don't have to try to battle your thoughts or mind your thoughts or judge your thoughts or witness your thoughts or let go of it. You don't have to do anything with your thoughts. You're shifting. <laughs> you, just, you just think this sound very, very nonchalantly, very casually. And next thing you know, you're in this space where there are no thoughts. So you're paying so attention. You're paying attention to something else with the with the sound in your mind. The, the, no, no, that's you're not paying. It's the opposite of all of that. You're not paying attention to anything. You're. It's like it's like if I were to say to you, um, re recall a dream that you had five years ago, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen. Well, well, yeah, you may have you may have a faint idea of the general topic of the dream. Maybe, maybe it's a recurring dream that you've had, you know, but you're not going to get detailed in it. You're not going to be able to pull out the specifics of that. So it's just placing your awareness very casually on this thing. And then, and that's the genius of, a very structured way of meditating, right? Again, I didn't create this. I, I learned this from my teacher. And I found it to be one of the most effortless styles of meditation out of all the styles that I've been practicing for those years leading up to meeting my teacher. But there's something about these mantras, these sounds that have a sort of forgetting quality. Right? They cause you to forget about the fact that you're meditating, and then ultimately they cause you to forget to think. And it's not, it's not like magic. It's not, it's not magic. I mean, I'm kind of skirting around it because I do go into the mechanics of it later on in my training. But we don't, that's six hours of instruction. We obviously don't have time to get into all of that. But the gist of it is that the mind is not the enemy of the meditation. The thoughts are not the barrier to meditation. It's really a question of, do you understand the mechanics or do you not understand the mechanics? In the same way that someone who doesn't know how to swim will look at a pool of water and be petrified and imagine the worst 
possible scenario of drowning in the water and not being able to get out, right? But someone who knows how to swim looks at a pool and just sees fun and sees relaxation. Mm. And it's really, it's really the same kind of deal with meditation. If you're, you don't understand how to, to swim through your mind, you're going to look at your thoughts as something that will potentially drown you. And, and if you do understand those mechanics and you look at meditation as enjoyable and quite, quite fun. So, um, but the swim coach is not going to sit there and talk to you about the water. They're going to tell talk to you about how to move your arms, how to move right. your legs. If you move your arms and your legs in the right way, you don't have to worry about the water. The water's fun, right? So with the meditation teacher, you don't have to sit there and talk about the thoughts and which thoughts are doing what. This is how you navigate your mind. If you do this, you don't have to worry about your mind. You don't have to worry about your thoughts at all. So I hope I didn't confuse people even more, but that's the gist of it. I mean, I make that the analogy makes sense. What's coming to mind is so I, I learned how to meditate. So after Headspace, I actually went to Vipassana, like probably mm -hmm. a year later in 2016. And yeah. what I learned in Vipassana, and, and you know, in ten days meditation will 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 do, will do something to you, but what is the idea of they don't give you a mantra, but they tell you to focus on your breath or the right. air going in and out of your nostrils. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I don't I don't necessarily practice. Um, I don't, I don't have a mantra that I practice. I still have been focusing on my breath and I'm curious, is that just a different strategy to accomplish the same thing or? Yes. Yes. So, so that's the other thing I learned is that meditation is a generic word and it means different things, different people. So different styles of meditation are kind of like different swimming styles and Vipassana is kind of like the breaststroke, right? You ever got see it. the breaststroke, the person is coming out of the water yeah. completely, arms go back, they go back in the water. So if you were going to learn, if someone says, you know, I'm going to teach you how to swim and that's what they teach you, you're going to think, man, why does anybody even bother swimming? Because this is, this is a very challenging. It still gets you to the other side. Whereas what I was, what I learned with my teacher was more like the doggy paddle version, right? So again, every style will get you to the other side of the pool. The question is, how hard do you want to work? So Vipassana, Vipassana is, hey, is yeah. Vipassana is notoriously challenging for people. I'm not saying it; it's bad. I'm not saying it's not useful. I'm just saying it's. If you just ask people their experiences coming out, it was challenging. It's Whereas if you tell. ask, yeah, it's hard to tell. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, and you talk to people coming out of a say a Vedic meditation training, they go, oh "My God, I didn't realize meditation was so easy and simple." But it's all the same thing, just from different traditions. Yeah, in Vipassana, it's you're in the room with like 50 people, and then mm -hmm. I don't know. Have you have you been to Vipassana before? I've never actually done a full Vipassana training. Yeah. I, I, I I fantasized about it, but I just can't seem to bring myself to, to do uh, it. Yeah, if you that. like, if you like to eat the, the, yeah, I mean, your way sounds a lot more enjoyable, but like, <laughs> <laughs> literally, like day one, you see like one or two people kind of walk out. Day two, yeah. a few more people, and day four yeah. is the hardest. I mean, the only reason I think I was able to do ten days and complete it was because I had two friends who were like, "You got to do this and sign up," and I felt like I'd be letting them down, so I pushed through it. But it is hard as hell. I mean, there is you're really until you get to day six, you're really going through pain. 
emotional yeah. emotional pain to work through it. But one thing actually that came through me, um, what I learned through Vipassana, besides an interesting technique for meditation, was that whenever we had a meal break, so you're like experiencing calm, experiencing bliss, especially if it's an early on class. The evening class is not so much. I'm not such an evening meditator, it turns out. But when it came to like lunchtime, I noticed as soon as I would leave the meditation hall and enter the dining room where we had the meals, the meal hall, my mind would speed up. It was like a car going from zero to 110 seconds. And the thoughts, and even though you can't, you're not supposed to talk and it's completely quiet, my thoughts were going a million miles a minute. Mm. And it occurred to me, like on, after a few days of experiencing that, how quickly I would start to eat because of the way my brain was functioning at that moment. There was no more calm and no more bliss. It was all just noise and like, and going really fast. And, you know, so I'm, 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 I'm curious, like for me, like this was one of the benefits of meditation was having that awareness of like, wow, so my mind is really calm. And then when it thinks about food, all of a sudden it goes, it speeds up really quickly. How can I stay more calm when I eat? Mm-hmm. Right. So that awareness really helped me with those, with those thoughts. I'm curious, I'm curious what kind of other benefits, you know, you've experienced, um, outside of the food realm, um, being aware, being more mindful, um, through your practice. I would say the biggest uh, benefit that I have had in meditation is it's it's given me a stronger connection to my intuition. So when I mentioned earlier about taking uh, about following my heart and being and and committing to doing that relentlessly, you know, it it's not as easy as it sounds because when you close your eyes and you're sitting in meditation, you realize how many voices are actually in there, right? So maybe the heart voice is in there, which they call the still small voice. But then there's all these other voices in there saying, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And it's hard to distinguish between which one is the heart voice and which one is not the heart voice. And, um, and, and early in, in my LA uh, stay, I got caught up in, I got caught up in the real estate, that whole debacle in 2006, 2007. I was um, being driven to get into real estate in order to make a quick buck, flip some houses, get some no money down mortgages and this kind of thing. And I would have, I would have said that my heart was guiding me back before it all collapsed, I would have said that I was being led by something within. And I realized after the fact, when I got really honest with myself, that I was being led by greed. I was being led by uh, the way it, it, I would, uh, I would be perceived as someone who, you know, had a lot of assets, which is my ego. So those voices were in there. And I, and I learned through the meditation because I've been practicing for a few years at that point, how to distinguish between the heart voice and all the other voices and what the quality of those, of the feeling tone related to those voices was. And, um, and, and what, I, what, I, what I arrived at was that your, 
heart voice will never tell you what not to do. It'll only tell you what to do. And it will, it will, it will push you in some, uh, in some way that causes you to have to trust or have to love or have to forgive or have to, you know, ex- exercise some sort of spiritual <laughs> uh, muscle that maybe has atrophied because you've been, you haven't been doing much of that in your life and all the other stuff, all the other stuff related to what things look like from the outside in that that's usually not your heart voice. Your heart voice is more of your inside out um, relationship to life. So that was very valuable, you know, and I, and I would say that that, there's no graduation from having to decide which voice is which you just kind of play at a higher level and and it's a question of refinement yeah that's um that's a powerful distinction i haven't heard that before where your where your heart your heart will never tell you not to do something but your heart will always tell you to lead you to do something that's a really powerful distinction yeah i call them the whis- i call them the whispers you know when your intuition's kind of whispering and i think meditation mm-hmm. is a great tool to help the whispers get louder to turn the volume right. up a bit and that's and that's what you want you, if it's just a whisper it's so easy to ignore you want to turn the volume up until it's like a jet engine so that <laughs> if a jet engine was going off at 5 in the morning you you would have to do something about that you can't just sleep through that and I feel like a lot of us are kind of sleepwalking in life in certain areas of our life um, because it's too much. The heart is too much of a whisper because we haven't really, we haven't really uh, listened to it. And, and that's how you get it louder is through listening to it and following, following it. That's how you turn it up. Yeah. And I think society doesn't really help a modern day society doesn't really help the voice get louder without doing the inner work. Because no, society is, is all about the external approach to happiness. You need this, you need that in order to be happy. So all that noise that we hear is from society and, and society's not taking any days off. So we really can't take days off from our inner practices to turn the volume up. Is there something now that you're, that the jet engine noise is really loud that you're, you're feeling like you got to execute on or execute towards? Yeah, man. Um, you know, uh, I'm starting this community, this online community, which is something that I'm, my ego is resisting because it just needs more work for me. <laughs> <laughs> you, do, you already do a lot of stuff. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And I'm like, I already do a lot of stuff. Like I could easily talk myself out of it, but it, what I've learned is that it's never about the thing, right? The thing is just the stepping stone to whatever it is that's on your path, right? You just have to, I have to do this in order to connect with something or someone that is going to then snowball into, you know, have being able to make a bigger impact in some way. And that's what I've noticed throughout my, my uh, career after I started teaching yoga was that it just, the intention is always the same, which is to help people, but there are ways to make a bigger and bigger impact and to help more and more and more people. And, um, and so these, these ideas like to start a podcast or to write a book are just ways of doing that so that you can optimize the time that you're spending helping people to help more people. 
do you ever feel an obligation to take action on on these um, loud whispers because you know that you know what happens, you see people's lives change around you when you actually do take action? Yes. And I know what happens when you don't do it. You don't sleep very well at night. And, and I, I like my sleep. Yeah, so. it's, it's, it's almost painful when, when, you, when you're not taking <laughs> action, right? I'm just... Yeah, think your life will fall apart in every way, eventually. Wow. Trying to hold on, because essentially what you're doing is you're holding on to the past. You're saying that what I've been experiencing is more relevant than what my heart is nudging me to do. And so trying to hold on to something is the quickest way for it to, to set yourself up for it to, let, for it to disappear, which makes you become desperate. That's, and I've already been through that. So I don't need to go through that again and again and again. And it's way more interesting to keep taking these leaps of faith, man. That's why, that's why I keep writing the stuff that I'm writing is because you get these stories, you know, you get these stories of synchronicity and serendipity and coincidence when you keep putting yourself out there because that's what's inspiring to you. And that's what other people want to hear. It's inspiring to them. If you try to play it safe, there's nothing really, no one cares about. I have this thing that I wrote years ago. I said, the only people who care about you playing it safe are people who are going to want money from you later. <laughs> that's mm. it. Everybody else wants you to go for it because it's a great story. It's inspiring. And, uh, and we all know someone, and maybe this, I don't know a lot about your story about, you know, going on your weight loss journey, but I know a lot of people, they, they do that after they come, they cross paths with someone else who's done it. Yeah. And that person inspires them. And maybe you're, you're that person for a lot of people, you know, it's like the Emerson quote, our chief want is someone to inspire us to be who we know we can be. And, uh, and that's, that's really the game that we're all out there playing. And, and the, those of us who feel like we are, the obstacles are so stacked against us that we just can't do anything. They have the most potential to inspire people because if you can do it, then people will look at that and go, okay, I can do that. If they could do it under those circumstances, under those impossible circumstances, then I know that I can do it. So I tell people now, you know, people who want to be meditation teachers who are depressed or who are even having suicidal ideations and stuff. I said, man, if you could, if you could do all the things you need to do to become a meditation teacher, you're going to be more impactful than someone like me because people look at me and they go, oh, you know, you don't have any serious problems. You know, you got this name light, you're airy fairy dude already. Of course you're into meditation. You know, but if someone has overcome suicide or depression or, you know, some extreme thing, you're going to inspire everybody. So, you know, don't ever discount whatever challenges you have. That's, that's your, those are your credentials for, for being, to having the impact that you're ultimately going to have on the world. That's powerful, man. So before we wrap up, I want to like to, um, do a little rapid fire questions with you. Um, I love it. It's your game. Yeah, cool. All right, like. So the first question is, where is one of the oddest places you've meditated? Uh, a laundromat in a dry cleaner in New York City, in the middle of New York City, in a in the in the um, <laughs> ta in the tailor's closet. <laughs> what was the urge to meditate? Why Why were you in a tailor's closet? Well. 
<laughs> I dropped my clothes off that morning. And then they said, come back at five o'clock. When I came back at five o'clock, they said, it's going to take another half an hour. And then the guy walked to the back. And this is like one of the, he's like an immigrant, barely spoke English, probably from some Asian country. So I didn't think it would be prudent to say, hey, do you mind if I meditate in your closet? You know, in the middle of New York City, he probably would have said no. So I, I figured it's better to just ask for forgiveness than permission. And I snuck into the closet and meditated there. Because walking back home and coming back would have been half an hour. So it was a great opportunity to do it. Right. And luckily, he didn't. no one opened the door and saw this strange man in the closet with his eyes closed doing God knows what. Wow. I don't know if I'd be able to focus in a, or not focus in a meditation. Well, it wasn't thing. the deepest. It wasn't the deepest meditation I've ever had. Right. 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 Um, okay. Second question but for it's you. It's a good story. Yeah. That's, 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 that's one I'll remember. Who do you know who feels the most fulfilled? Uh, I would say my teacher, my meditation teacher, who I'm still in touch with. He's been meditating for 40 years, 50 years now. And, uh, I, the very moment I laid eyes on him, the thing that really drew me in was he didn't seem he didn't seem like he was unfulfilled at all in any way. And uh, and he was just a normal guy, dressed normally. He wasn't like a monk or anything like that, just a regular guy. But he was emanating this sense of peace and inner happiness that I'd never seen before. And I realized that's what I've been looking for all that time. That's why I didn't stay at the advertising job because nobody there had that. That's why I didn't stay in modeling because no one there had that. Mm. That's why I didn't even stay in yoga because no one there had that. But when I met the meditation guru, that's what made me go, okay, that's, that's my path because that's what I've been looking for. You mind sharing his name? His name is Tom Knowles. Oh, Tom Knowles. I've heard of Tom Knowles. Awesome. Next question is, what is the book or books you've given the most as a gift and why? I don't usually give books uh, because I wouldn't want people giving me books that they think I should read. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say uh, the book I've recommended the most is when I cross paths with people who say, hey, like, teach me how to meditate. Can you give me some tips? I would say, get my meditation <laughs> book, Bliss More, because that's what I wrote it for. People like you, regular people who want to learn how to meditate, but you know, you don't have access to, we, we don't have six hours to sit together in a room and you don't have to pay me a thousand dollars to do so. So grab the book and it has all the things you need in order to get your practice off the ground within a couple of hours. Literally, it's, a, it's an incredible book. Um, if you're thinking about meditation, highly, highly recommend picking a copy up. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. What is something you wish more people knew about you? Um, that I'm not, I'm, I'm a very normal person. Like I don't sit around thinking about meditation or spirituality. <laughs> when you're hanging out with me, we're, we're, I'm posing hypothetical questions. I'm joking. Um, you know, wanting to talk about you or just normal stuff and relationships and like, that's what interests me. Mm. Um, yeah, I think people think about me and they they think I'm I'm some sort of airy fairy type of person who's only talking about spirituality and that's nothing could be further from the truth. I can testify. I can testify to that. Um okay, so the last question for you is um what is one area of your life where you are feeling full in right now? 
feeling full? Yeah, feeling full. Oh man. Um like the name I of the feel show. like I'm I feel like I'm I'm very much on my path. And 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 the way I know that that is the case is that I'm 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 uncomfortable a lot of the time, but I'm moving mm-hmm. through it anyways. And it's a good so there's different kinds of of discomfort. There's discomfort that comes from trying to be something that you're not. And there's discomfort that comes from breaking out of the status quo and being who you are. And so I'm experiencing the latter and and it's not comfortable being who you are in a world where everybody basically is trying to fit in. Um, But it's so rewarding and so fulfilling, especially when you see that people are inspired by uh, you having certain experiences and, 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 and it, and it gives them permission to do the same thing. And I feel like that's what we need more of in the world is people who are living their paths so sincerely and, and, and humbly that it inspires other people to do the same. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Powerful. And it's amazing. All the people that, you know, we can touch when we're in, coming from that place, when we're living in that, living, living on that purpose. Um, mm. And it's, I know it's, um, it, it's, it's amazing to hear all the stories that you share of all the people that, you know, it, it, even stories you haven't shared, people that I know that you've impacted their lives. Um, it's really, it's really incredible the work you're doing. I know you've written a bunch of books and you continue to write and you have your own podcast. Um, and I think, you know, you're, you're just somebody who I respect because there's so much you, you give so much the work that you're doing, um, the details, the the big picture, and you just, you're just somebody who's really going for it. And I really, I mean, I love that about you and it's amazing all the lives that get impacted because of your decisions that you make and all the work you've been doing on yourself. So thank you. Thank you, man. Thanks for, for, uh, that reflection. It's really sweet. And, um, I feel the same about you and I feel like you and I don't get a chance to spend enough time together. So, well, my teacher always says though, he says, uh, he says the, the lamp posts aren't meant to be congregating together. The lamp posts need to be in the darkness because <laughs> that's where they're most useful. So maybe, maybe we're not supposed to connect that's, as much as I that's want. That's right. But here we got, now we, now we had a reason to, so it was great. You know, now the podcast, it's a thing that's a thing that's beneficial with the podcast. You have a reason to connect with people who are shining lights, who are lampposts out there doing, doing good work to come together to create more light. Mm, I agree. All right, brother. Well, have an awesome weekend and it's um, great, great seeing you. Thanks, thanks for joining. Thanks, bro. Hey, one more thing before we say goodbye. My goal is to make Feeling Full the best possible podcast you listen to, and I love your feedback. If you have comments, ideas for future shows, guests, or topics, or just feedback in general, you can email me at m@feelingfull.com. You can also find out more about the show and all the past episodes at feelingfull.com. And if you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend or leave a review. Until the next episode, take care, be well, and feel full.